Welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockman Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Bike Pack Adventures podcast. Today it is January 1st, 2023, the start of a new year. I hope everybody is recovered from a night of whatever you did. I hope that you enjoyed 2022 and that you have aspirations and goals to make 2023 the best year yet. Uh, Whether it's personal or fitness related or cycling related, for myself, I'm really looking forward to, you know, seeing Jasmine grow some more and uh, to start um, doing a little bit more stuff with her outside where I can see her engage in it, you know, whether it's walks in the park or bike rides up to like Champlain lookout, you know, she'll be a little more in tune, won't be as sleeping, sleeping as much and can kind of enjoy the participation in the activities. I also look forward to travel. My wife's family is from Iran. I think many people, many listeners know this and we are hoping to kind of have a family meetup in Turkey because a, things aren't going great in Iran at the moment. I mean, we're all hoping for change within the country, but um, it's also not a place we want to take our daughter at the moment. We'd rather wait to till um, there's a change in government and things get better, hopefully. So we're going to wait on that. But meeting up in Turkey for a couple of weeks, in which case I will bring a bike and I will try to get out for 10 days or so of touring. My wife, once again, as I always mention, is so kind and gracious. Uh, she has agreed to let me do that knowing that you know if if I'm around then she's 24 7 translator and there's lots of people there to help with Jasmine so it's a perfect opportunity for for me to do something I'm really passionate about as well as have a chance to visit her family a bit and um, explore a new country Turkey would be freaking amazing we're also looking to go to Belgium possibly to to meet up some friends there and do a little bit of a family touring hopefully within the region and uh, yeah, and hopefully meet up with some of the past podcast guests I've had or listeners that are in the area that uh, might want to meet up for a day of riding or to host us or who knows, who knows what happens. We haven't really made the plans yet. As for my cycling journey, I am definitely going to keep working with, uh, with a coach. I feel that even this week, this past week, um, I was kind of between plans and not much stuff scheduled on training peaks. And so I just did nothing, you know. Well, I, Also, it was really, really busy week, but I could have got out for some rides or ridden indoors, and I just didn't do much at all. So I feel like for me, the coach is a, a necessary thing. So I look forward to continuing to work with a, with a, you know, a tailored training plan. I'm also planning to, to ride the Wendigo Ultra, which is a um, 
winter ultra fat biking race event um, in the national capital region. So it's about an hour or so west of Ottawa. And I have quite a few friends that are going to do the 50K. And I think uh, the guy I talked to in this episode here, Richard Cohen, I think he's going to be coming up to do the 200K. And so I have to decide what I want to do. The competitive nature in me says, do the 200. Challenge yourself. Push your limits. The social part of me says, hey, do the 50K. Have a great time with friends. Drink some booze. Shots of shick shocks. Spiced rum. While riding the shick shock, maybe. Socialize. Just enjoy the moment. So it's really hard to decide. I'm also looking at possibly doing the Route Blanche. So I'm going to talk in depth about that today with Richard Cohen. And um, I know Samuel Marcon wrote it two years ago with a, a good friend of his. And it actually works out that when I have my school's March break, with the exception of needing to take one day off, probably on the end. So either the Friday or the uh, before the break or the Monday after, just the way flights work out, that could work out really well that it would give me uh, like five or six days to ride it with a flight on either end. So looking into that, seeking my wife's approval and permission. She said she'll think about it, so I think that's a good sign. And there's a lot of other good reasons that point towards it. Right now I have a fat bike for this winter as well. My mother-in-law is here, so there is that helping hand. She won't be here next winter probably. I think she'll she'd rather visit in summers after that. Uh, she's here this winter, so Jasmine is at an age where it's it's hard to get daycare. And so she's going to help take care of her. So with me having March break and going off cycling, well, there's still somebody around. So fingers crossed. Also, I have to get permission from the school board to, to have an unpaid day. They don't like to give leave for things like passions and hobbies, apparently. So the chance of that might not happen. We'll have to talk about it. I also look to look forward to riding the Canadian Shield 400. So that's my route. That's the shortest one as a, as a training ride, probably in May, late May, mid-May, once the Gatineau Park is open anyways. And to do it as an ITT, you know, as fast as I can. So minimal gear, probably t- under 30 hours for sure. 24 would be the hope, you know. And then... At some point later in the year to ride the Canadian Shield 1300 in completion as a time trial. So that one I predict at the fastest would be five days. It would be, there's a lot of climbing, a lot of tough sections, um, hike-a-bike sections where you just can't ride. So yeah, it's going to be a good one, but a tough one. And also if we're in Europe traveling and have time maybe to do some kind of epic little trip there, if my wife have to come, has to come back for work, maybe I'll be able to, uh, to do something like that. Uh, I'm not sure. And as well, I, I, or maybe in Japan. So I, I do want to get out to Japan and visit my son. So maybe if I'm already in Europe, I could fly to Japan with my bike, do some riding and exploring, and then come back to Canada at the end of August to teach. What else? The Canadian Shield Bikepacking Summit. I know I've talked about it uh, yesterday's episode, but I'll talk about it again. Well, maybe I'll make an announcement. So the first big announcement about the Canadian Shield Bikepacking Summit is the keynote speaker. So for the 2023 Canadian Shield Bikepacking Summit, 
we are going to be having Megan Hakkinen coming down from British Columbia to, uh, to talk and share about her experiences and passion. So I will actually read her bio, which you can also find on the website as soon as it goes live. And it says here, Megan Hakkinen is a bikepacker, writer, and adventure seeker whose two-wheeled adventures have taken her from Haida Gwaii to Mexico's high plateaus across Canada and the United States and from North Cape to Tarifa along some of Europe's highest paved roads. She is a four times Everester, as well as a Trans Am bike race, North Cape 4000, Alberta Rockies 700, Transcontinental Race, and Paris Brest Paris finisher. She holds women's course records for the BC Epic 1000, the Big Lonely, as well as the World 24 Hour Time Trial Championships. Her debut travel memoir, South Away, the Pacific Coast on Two Wheels, was a finalist for two Canadian Book Awards. So, guys, I really look forward to having her here. You know, I've had her on the podcast, and I really look forward to just having a chance to to chill and talk and socialize and share in our passion, and uh, it's going to be amazing. So that is the first announcement on the Bikepacking Summit. And that is it. That's all I have to talk about. I should just mention, if you do enjoy this podcast and you appreciate everything I've been doing and what I'm trying to do within the Biking community, I would love and encourage you to subscribe to patreon patreon.com slash bike pack adventures and to support these projects and support me uh, through these endeavors you could also go on your favorite podcast platform and leave a five-star review i do go and read them and you know usually shortly after reading one i'm going and sharing it with my wife and being like hey check what this person wrote this is so nice you know it makes me feel good it really does motivate me and um and lastly, share share an episode. If there's an episode you really enjoyed and you think somebody in your family or friends or inner circle or greater circle, your social media circle might enjoy, reshare it, you know, or post about it. Uh, make, a, make a story, you know. I appreciate that. And uh, that is all. On to this year's first episode. In this episode of the Bike Pack Adventures podcast, I have a chance to talk with Richard Cohen. Richard has a really interesting story as he's a retired Canadian Air Force fighter pilot that got back into mountain biking as so many of us do in our late 20s and early 30s. Through that journey, he discovered fat biking and has constantly pushed himself to take on greater challenges. With the ultimate goal of participating in the Iditarod Trail Invitational in Alaska, he has taken part in a couple different fat bike races in the U.S., ridden the Route Blanche in eastern Quebec as an unsupported time trial, and is continually exploring ways of refining his winter riding skills. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did and get I hope you enjoy this ep- I hope you enjoy this episode and get as much out of it as I know I did. Richard, welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures podcast. Yeah, cool. Thanks for having me, Chris. My pleasure. So, let's just uh, you know, start off with that background thing. Tell us all about yourself, where you're from and where you grew up and all yeah, you bet. So kind of like what we were talking about earlier. So I'm, I'm 39 years old. Um, I live in the Saguenay, which is, you know, a kind of a small region of Quebec, uh, about in two hours north of Quebec City. Uh, and I've been here for like the last seven years. So I'm kind of like uh, ex-regular force military. And I decided to kind of uh, um, slow things down a little bit, um, mm-hmm. just to be able to focus on, uh, on family and, uh, and some of these adventures that I like doing. But, um, in terms of growing up, man, like, uh, so my father was, uh, um, was foreign service. So we kind of lived all over the place. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, growing yeah. Up. 
So uh, we lived in a bunch of different countries, man. And uh, any favorites out there? Any favorites out there? Well, I, I think like from like the family favorite was was probably uh, Kenya. Like I was born in Kenya. Okay. And I wish I could say I remembered to like more of it. Like I was three years old when we left. Yeah. But um, but I've got incredible incredible stories that I hear all the time from my family. So from their perspective, that would probably be, uh, be the favorite. But uh, I lived in Argentina as well. Oh, that's cool. I lived in Greece for a little while, and then um, and actually spent like five years in Ottawa, which is uh, which is where I know you are, man. Yeah. Yeah, I guess yeah. that's like the end of career thing where you go and you just become an office jockey. And uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. Like they move around and like they go do these Gucci jobs, you know, and in, in different countries, and then they come back to Ottawa and they kind of suck it up for like you know three to four years until mm-hmm. they can get uh, get the next awesome posting. Unfortunately, but I mean, you're right in some respects. It's kind of like uh, like the military. You sometimes you end up in Ottawa towards the end of your career, and it's yeah. not necessarily where you want to be, but. It's not a bad city. Um, <laughs> I, I met somebody recently and they were working foreign service. And he says, yeah, like his actual position is something you can only do abroad. So he says like his whole career, unless he, you know, switches trades or roles or whatever you want to call it, um, his whole career will be abroad. So he was just, but it seems pretty cool. Like it's a, it seems nice. like a pretty good time yeah, if mean, you're think- interested in living abroad for a long time. Right. And I think if you love traveling, it's incredible. Um, and it's incredible, I think, with young kids as well. Mm. And I loved it till a certain point. And then when I hit <laughs> high school, I was like, I just want to be kind of centered somewhere and anchored somewhere. Yeah. Um, and I could just kind of got tired of moving around and making new friends all the time. So, yeah. yeah. And, and to avoid doing that, you went and joined the military. So perfectly sensible <laughs> thing to do. <laughs> yeah right yeah i kind of went the other direction from wanting to slow down and yeah be in one spot that's totally true and you mentioned you were air force so what kind of uh what trade did you have yeah so so i'm a pilot um uh so we fly fighters here uh in daggettville so been in the military for 15 years and then i guess uh flying fighters the last yeah 11 11 probably years from my reserves day from my my reserve days i have a good friend named genevieve bouchard you'd probably know her she was a pilot as well maybe oh she wasn't a fighter pilot actually so what uh do you know what she's she's in trenton um no i'm not sure i remember yeah yeah trenton's like uh multi hercs and uh and c-17s and stuff like that so no, the name doesn't ring a bell. That's where I grew up. I think I spent nine of, which is the longest, pretty much the longest stint of my life. I think maybe six years was in Trenton. So everywhere else oh, was, was there. My right dad was Air Force as well. So lots yeah, and lots Trenton's of. Trenton's not a bad place. I've spent some time yeah. there. So Lived in Valcartier for a little while in Quebec. Okay, and, yeah, uh, yeah, that's yeah. That's why I speak French. And, yeah. yeah. Well, Quebec City is awesome, especially when you're talking riding. Quebec City is a phenomenal place. There's so much in just the probably half oh, yeah? hour around Quebec City itself. It's, that's incredible. All right. Yeah. So let's uh, let's talk about that. How did you get into biking? What's your journey been like? Um, well, or, go ahead. Yeah, I know. It's kind of one of those things where I think you were talking about in one of the podcasts uh, earlier with one of your guests where it's like you get into it as a kid and I kind of did it as like a young teenager and then it's just life just takes over mm-hmm. and you join the, I joined the military and career became, you know, the focus got married, had kids, that became the focus. And then in 2013, I was doing like a military, um, just a, an exercise in Comox and the mountain biking around there was so incredible. Mm. And I was out there for two weeks and I was like, that's it. I'm in, I bought a bike, um, like while I was out there 
And, and so that was 10 years ago, 11 years ago now. And it's just, yeah, it's been kind of full throttle with the bikes ever since, uh, ever oh, nice. since then. Were yeah. you ever posted in Comox or? Um, no, I was never posted there. Awesome I, based I on lived, that. What's that? That'd be a great place to live. Uh, Comox is phenomenal, man. I just, it was, it used to be my number one retirement place. And you know what it would be still? It's just like, yeah, it's kind of tough to afford Comox these days. Yeah. A little bit pricey. Yeah. My dad had a, my dad was a pilot, huh? He, um, uh, no he was, way. he was a, like a private pilot. I mean, he had his, okay. he had his commercial license as well, but he never did anything commercial. He had his, you know, IFR, VFR licenses, all those qualifications. And yeah, uh, right. we used to fly like. Uh, well, when I was young, you know, like, um, you know, I think Cessna 172 at a point, he had his 206 for a while. He had a Mooney, uh, RV4 acrobatic type airplane. Um, lots no of, way. lots of fun stuff. Um, did he take you, uh, did he take you flying much? Chris? Oh yeah, man. It was to the point where when I was 16, he offered to pay for my flight, my pilot's license and stuff. And I was, you know, I was at that age where I'm like, no, I don't want to be in an airplane anymore. I just want to go out and chase girls, you know? So, yeah, right. so I didn't do it. And obviously uh, regretful now but hey at that point in time you just don't know what you you know it's just such well, a, a part of life that you're so used to it you don't even it's not even special you know unfortunately 100 percent. yeah I, I totally get that, that yeah we sense. used to fly to we flew to comox once actually and then uh, on to bc somewhere and um, yeah that's a beautiful spot i mean i learned to fly private pilot license in victoria oh okay and we used to fly around the island and head up to tofino yeah. i don't know if you know yeah tofino i, I spent some time there. Yeah. it's beautiful man so you you'd head up there for your, like your 120 dollar hamburger or whatever it was and uh <laughs> get a nice trip on the way but it was good it was a lot of fun good yeah, place i, I drove a fly. van out to tofino and like just lived in the van for a while for like couple months while i was traveling yeah chris that's like that's like my retirement dream man. So, <laughs> it wasn't a camper van it was just a van old. that i took the back seats out of you know that's all you need dude yeah, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't get too cold on the west coast no, so exactly. it's not as funny like it is up here yeah and i met a cool dude who had a surf school and he was just like after i did my course with him and stuff he's like i'll just lend you an extra board man and then somebody else was like really stuck on drugs and sold me their wetsuit <laughs> for like 80 bucks and i was like score you know and um yeah so it just worked out and i stayed for like two weeks it was great nice um so yeah biking (laughs) yeah right kind of went on a tangent there it happens um no it's good so yeah i mean so that kind of like when i went to comox that kind of got me into riding again in my adult life and then when we moved out here to quebec um i really had no idea um and just the riding opportunities out here are just incredible and um so accessible like so close to to where we live uh like i live about you know a 30 second ride away from some pretty epic mountain bike trails and then just kind of got into fat biking got into gravel riding and just a little bit everything to be totally honest the perfect midlife crisis isn't it 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 is totally you know quit your job and then just start riding bikes and uh Unfortunately, I still have to have some sort of a job. But, are you uh, are you in the reserves then, still working on the bases? or? Uh, yeah, so I work at – so we have a, an F-18 simulator here in Bagotville. So um, I work there, and then I also fly for a company, a uh, private company, that provides like a lot of the red air or adversary support oh, okay. for the F-18s. Yeah, yeah. And then I fly as a reservist probably, I don't know, once every couple weeks, something Oh, like sweet. That. So yeah. if I come to Bagotville, uh, you get me in a flight simulator? Hundred no, percent. No uh, yeah. That would be epic. <laughs> Just until I throw up. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty fun, man. That's pretty um, fun. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, what else? So, yeah, so predominantly mountain biking and then slowly got into gravel and whatnot as well, right? Yeah, I would say so. Um, yeah, I just kind of started mountain biking around the region, and then I got into enduro racing probably about five years ago. And then uh, fat biking at the same time. And then I had a really bad crash um, about two years ago in an mm. enduro race where I broke my femur. Oh, fuck. And since then, um, I don't want to say like, I'm, I, you know, I did a couple races this past year. But, you know, um, I got to have, uh, yeah, a bit of a, a, bit of a thought uh, how much more time and effort I wanted to put into that vice mm the more sustainable endurance stuff, to be honest, which I really like as well. And is a completely different challenge from, you know, riding your bike downhill as fast as you can. Well, I think as Um, you, as you get older too, it's like, yeah, you might have a crash and like recover, but like you're always then in the back of your mind is like, Oh fuck, I don't want to crash again. Like it was so painful last time. Recovery was so long where if you're in your twenties, just like, whatever, man, I'll recover and I'll keep riding, you know? And so they could still race full speed and not care because like the mentality, you know, I, I think is, only when you're around 30, do you, do you hit that point where you actually really process things? Like, <laughs> well, it is true. Right. And, and I broke my femur. I remember the doctors telling me like, yeah, six months, you'll be back to normal. And I'm like, that's not so bad. And then four months later, I'm like, you know, still walking around with like a cane. I've got a huge limp. I'm like, I'm on the trainer, but nowhere near yeah. um, where I was before. And I want to say it was a good, you know, it was a good eight months before I was riding a mountain bike again. Okay. And a good year before I was kind of, you know, felt like I was like 90 to 95%. Like it's a, it was a long road to recovery for me. That's wild. Um, And so, yeah, that is definitely something that I think about, you know, when you head out on the Mm -hmm. mountain bike and, and try and go fast. But um, yeah, so I don't know. And and my wife is, uh, you know, she, she gets a little upset when I start talking about that kind of stuff because it was obviously a big, a bit of a strain on the family when yeah. you know you're sitting on the couch for a solid four months and you can't do a heck of a lot yeah. and help out. So. And uh, you mentioned yeah. kids. How many kids do you have? Yeah, so I have two kids. I have a daughter who's seven years old, and then, then my son is ten. And it's fun slowly getting them into uh, into riding and into into skiing and snowboarding and stuff like that too. So I know you have a young daughter as well. Yeah, she so. just turned one. So. Yeah, that's pretty cool, man. Yeah, it's exciting. It's uh, it starts to get very fun later on when they can get into the things that you are also into, right? Yeah, yeah. Somebody was uh, there, even just today there was a post from somebody bike touring with their kid, like in a, on a shotgun. What do you call it? kid ride? Kids ride shotgun seat, and then yes. with their head down on the Ortlieb handlebar bag and sleeping. And they're like, "Yeah, it's so easy to tour." When and somebody commented, and it was like, "That's why I wouldn't tour with little kids because they don't see anything and appreciate it." And I was like, "Well." <laughs> Yeah, but do you really want to give up all those years of potential touring just because you have a kid at home? Like, no, man, just make it happen. Like, slowly they'll start to to ask questions and experience things. And, like, you know, it doesn't have to be an all-at-one, but... Well, that's just it, too. And it's amazing what kids get just through, you know, osmosis and mm-hmm. from, from actually just being there, even at a young age, right? Yeah, yeah. But, I think he was more thinking long-term touring, touring because then he's wrote, like, no, I would be teaching them how to, like, raise animals on the farm and be outside. And I was like, okay, well, you could do that, too. Like, <laughs> you know, like, whatever. Enough, right? <laughs> I'm not going to argue about it on Facebook or Instagram. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, you said – you mentioned um, – like more ultra distance riding stuff. Um, did you do, have you done much? Um, let's say warm weather, bike packing. You know, not a ton of, it, it was funny when, when like the ultra stuff started coming up, it was 
much more on the fat bike side of oh, okay. things until recently. I mean, most of my, my like long distance, like gravel esque or bike touring type stuff, um, has been, um, like nothing too crazy. Like I've done the Cabot trail uh, a couple times, uh, out on the East coast. Yeah, I've heard it's great. Yeah. Have you done that? It's, it's no, I actually just interviewed somebody. It's not released yet, but, um, yeah, he was, uh, talking about the Cabot trail and he's like, it's pretty damn hilly. And it's like, yeah, it's a fun one. So I did that. I've done it three times now. I did it the first time on a fat bike in the winter. Oh, wild. And then I took a couple days to do that. And then I how long is it? It's like 300 kilometers. Okay. But it's not so much. I mean, like you said, it's the distance is 100% manageable. It's the um, it's the elevation gain mm. um, towards the north side of it. That's that's pretty significant. I mean, it's nothing too crazy. But, uh, but it's definitely a lot of climbing. Okay. Yeah. So how did you get into the long distance, like winter riding or fat biking? You know what? I have no, I have no really real idea, like how it happened. I just kind of fell into it. Um, actually I do. Okay. So I started, um, I think for Christmas or something like that, I got a book by a woman named Jill Homer, who has done the Iditarod, uh, up okay. in Alaska. Yeah. And that was kind of like as I was just starting to get into fat biking. So um, that kind of spurred my um, kind of interest in doing that. And then, but I'm like, I got to get some experience before I just run up here to Alaska and start doing like a thousand mile race from Anchorage to Nome. Yeah. And so are you going to so, do, is that the plan at some point? That's like the, that's like the long, that's like the long term plan. Okay. Um, it was funny because I was um, <laughs> like last year, Last year was a bit of a mess last winter because of COVID, mm-hmm. but uh, it was like two weeks before the Iditarod, the 350-mile version kicked off because you have to do the 350-mile version as like a qualifier before they let you go do the 1,000. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. And he, he called me up or he sent me an email. He's like, hey, we just had a cancellation if you want to come up and do the 350. And I'm like, okay, man, I'm... I was well behind the eight ball. I was like, no, two weeks is, uh, is nowhere near enough prep for me to make this happen. Mm. So, um, it's a bit of a journey to get up there to Alaska and haul all your kit with you. So, so I was like, uh, no, so I'll jump on one of those F 18s and what's that? Yeah. I mean, if you could get a fat bike and an F 18, I'd I'd be laughing. Right. Or if I convince (laughs) my boss to let me take one on the road for a couple of weeks, then, uh, then that would be problem solved. Sadly, that's not the case. No, apparently security and stuff. I don't know. Russians. Uh, yeah. Mentioned. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. It'd be pretty easy to blow that off. I think. But. <laughs> um, yeah, that's pretty awesome. Like I, I, I just watched, um, well, one of my, one of my Patreons, uh, Bob Davidson, he, he messaged me. He's like, you got to check out this, you got to check out this, uh, Amazon prime documentary safety to gnome. And I was like, I watched it. It's a great like, movie, right? Wow. Amazing. Like it was, it really makes you want to go do it, but at the same time, it kind of makes you shit your pants a little bit because you're like, it could be pretty serious. Yeah. Like the one guy pulling off his balaclava, he's like, it was quite hot. So I took off my balaclava and all of a sudden I felt something wet. And I realized the tip of my ear fell off. And I was like, yeah, what? <laughs> your, your ear yeah, just fell off. Right? Like, what the hell? Like, it, it, it is. And it can be when, when the weather is okay. Like it can be so simple and relatively mm-hmm. straightforward. You know, like fat biking is relatively low impact. Yeah. Um, you can just sit on your bike and, and cruise along. But I mean, when it's minus 30, minus 40, it's a whole other ball game. Mm-hmm. And it's like, most people are just thinking about survival at that point. And, you know, you're trying to ride your bike crazy long distances. So. Yeah. And I look at the guy who hiked it how many times and I think, 
in some ways, I think hiking it is easier than fat biking because your feet are moving, all your body's all being used. So you're constantly producing heat everywhere and you're not yes. dealing with the issues that a biker is dealing with where like their toes are just kind of stationary inside a boot. And uh, yeah, it's, it's funny. The woman that, that, uh, who wrote those couple books about the, I did a rod. She, I think she did the, she did the walk run of it as well. And she was kind of comparing the two. Mm. And I think what she appreciated was the fact that when you walk, you get to enjoy the scenery a little bit more, uh, et cetera. But um, I think she found the fat bike. I mean, the fat bike is by far the most efficient way of doing it. Like they win that race. Um, they win that race pretty much every year. The bikers are the first to first to get there. But Mm -hmm. yeah, if you have a crazy snowfall or something like that, you know, um, you can be pushing your bike for, for several days up there. Yeah. I've heard of some of that. Like, yeah. Where people say they just like that one section of a hundred miles, you could be pushing for five days. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's funny when I did the La Rue Blanche, it was, there was a good solid storm before I started it that dumped probably about 15 centimeters. And then right in the middle, um, of my trip, same kind of thing. I just got like a really big storm, about like 20 centimeters of fresh snow. Yeah. So I did, I did some pushing on the route blanche for sure. So let's, uh, let's jump into like, what was your first long fat biking trip that kind of got the, that got things yes, going where was, you're like, I want to do more of this. Um, so, I mean, it was wanting to do the Iditarod and to do the Iditarod to do the 350, you need two long distance fat bike races. So the first one I did was uh, the Fat Pursuit in Idaho. Okay. Um, I don't know if you've heard of that one, Fat Pursuit. I, I've heard the names have come up, but yeah. Okay. It's You've heard of Jay Peterberry? Yeah. 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 So um, it's his, like, he has a whole race series, essentially. So okay. it's one of his races that he puts on. And it's in Yellowstone, and it's incredible. Um, you know, you start at, like, 6,000 feet. You top out at, like, 8,000 feet, and it's 200 kilometers long, and the scenery is, like, out of this world. Mm. so um that was the first one that i did and that would have been in 2018 i think and then in 2019 i did the tuscobia 160 so which is um in minnesota scenery is not as good but uh but it was it was a good race as well okay and i've heard the uh, sorry my question is um so on those first couple events or races that you did um you know, a what kind of bike were you using, and how was your bike packed, your kit? Like, let's talk through that, and then maybe yeah. discuss how things change. You know, moving forward as you as you kind of gain that experience. Yeah, you bet. Um, I think I think reading um, some of the books that I talked about kind of really helped me a lot in terms of setup. But there wasn't when I first started riding the fat bike back in like 2015, there wasn't like it, it hadn't taken off the way mm-hmm. it has now. Like there's so much information out there now, but back then there wasn't nearly as much. So it was kind of, it was a little bit touch and go and then getting some information from, from some of these books. Um, and I wouldn't say that, that like, I mean, Route Blanche uh, was a very different setup for me just because the fact that I wanted to do it unsupported. So I was carrying way more gear okay. than I was for any of the endurance races. Like the endurance races were relatively lightweight in comparison to the setup that I had for the route blanche. <clears throat> yeah. You have your mandatory um, kit list of stuff you have to bring. And then you took, yeah, yeah, you do. Right. It's like the cold weather sleeping bag, the bivy X amount of food. Um, some of them require you to have a stove, um, and then like safety jackets and mittens and stuff like that. Um, 
so i mean it ends up being a decent amount of gear um but certainly nothing like you know five days of of food and stuff like yeah. that so um so yeah the setup was quite different um but certainly those races were a good intro to to what to what it was going to be like for sure okay. and and so you're uh, packing do you do you use racks on your bike or is it more of like the seat pack I, and i did roll? for the route blanche so i used i used racks i used panniers uh arkel panniers mm-hmm. for the route blanche but uh for the other ones no i just went with like a, a seat post bag and a frame bag and then I essentially had my sleep system rolled up uh, on the front. Okay. Um, yeah, pretty much all. So I have a salsa muckluck, um, okay. which is essentially what I've been riding since that fat pursuit. Like it's a, it's been a really solid bike. Um, so riding that, and then yeah, Revelate, uh, Revelate Designs is pretty much all of the um, frame bag uh, roll up front. Yeah, they make um, good stuff. That kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, you bet. And their stuff is also like designed more towards racing too. I feel like a lot of their stuff, so it's quite lightweight. It's not crazy, you know. Yeah, it's it's good stuff. Like I've had no issues with any of their stuff. Uh, I mean, to be fair, on the Route Blanche, like I had Arkel panniers, and that was my first time with panniers. Like I'd never used them before, but uh, honestly, man, they worked out. They worked out incredibly well. They okay. were really good. Yeah. And I was very nervous too about having a rack on the back of the bike because uh, I know Samuel, who you had on mm-hmm. uh, a couple weeks ago, right? They had issues with, because their bikes were quite loaded up for the Route Blanche as well. And so I think they, yeah, they had some mechanical issues with their panniers and ended up uh, okay. breaking them or something on the way. So Yeah, I yeah. just got to get to like, I don't know, some of the ones that are made of steel or, um, I like Old Man Mountain too. I just find their, their stuff like, I just recently got an old man mountain rack and it can be used on the back or front, just depending yeah. on what rods you put on. That's really cool. So, and then you can get like, um, and then you have mountain the, mounts that you can hook it right to your through axle. So it's, um, supports more weight. So I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. I've heard good things about those racks, Chris. Um, and I almost bought one for my salsa, but I just ended up going with the stock salsa rack, which was good. I had, good I had no complaints. Yeah. Yep. I had no complaints at all. It worked like a beaut. Yep. Cool. For sure. And um, yeah, so how did you prepare for this uh, this race out in um, where did you say it was again? Montana. Uh, it's in Idaho. Idaho. It's in, uh, yeah, in so Idaho. I, yeah. How did you like? What did you do to to survive? I don't know. How cold did it get? What did you do to to manage your your feet and stuff? And it's um, in, in terms of it, I, I look at the way I prep for like for races and things like that now, and I kind of look back and I was like, man, I was doing it all wrong. Well, what was the wrong way and what's the right way? Well, I would do a ton. I would do a lot of riding outside back then, which isn't a bad thing. You know, you have to ride with your kit. You've got to test your kit. You've got to know how it works. Um, And especially in the winter, because there's a lot of nuance to riding fat bikes in the winter. Um, A lot of things that can go wrong with your gear. Where in the summer, you can walk away from and it's no problem. Mm -hmm. But if you have a mechanical on your fat bike when it's minus 30 outside, you can run into issues pretty quickly. Um, so I guess what most of the training that I used to do, you know, I say back then, but it's really only like five years ago, uh, was relatively unstructured. Um, and then now I will certainly continue to ride outside, but I would say the bulk of my, like, you know, training leading up is spent on an indoor trainer. You know what I yeah. mean? Just putting in the hours on an indoor trainer. <laughs> and are you using a coach now or? 
No, I just I use the Trainer Road, um, which I don't know you're probably familiar with. I've heard of it. Uh, and a Kicker Core, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of it is done on that. To be honest, then. But, you know, I, I still get out on the weekends and I still do long rides on the weekends. Yeah. And, and certainly test well, I think I think that's like, yeah, the trainer's perfect for your interval rides where it's maybe you don't need to go outside. You can still go outside, but it's like if you're going to ride with a group, you might as well stay home and do it on your trainer because you're not going to do the ride you're supposed to do, you know. And totally. then save the the big outdoor ones where you're going to do endurance pace, easy going. Yes. Yeah. Uh, as long as if you're riding with friends, they're not like, let's push it and race. And then it's kind of <laughs> counterproductive to your actual goal. Right. So it's yeah, tough. Which throws you totally off your training plan, but yeah. yeah, that's okay. That's plus if I had to spend five, I know, I know friends that do spend an awful lot of time on the trainer. Like they can do the, the five hour rides on the trainer. I, I think I just gouge my eyes out. Like, yeah. I don't think I could do that to be honest with you. I don't know if I ever, if you have ever heard, I, I did it once uh, a few years back with the organizer of, um, Burton and Halliburton, Mark, we did a, a Lord of the Rings trilogy ride on trainers. Oh, no. And there was a few dudes from around Canada that he was friends with. And we all just kind of sat there and rec- ride, rode through not three movies. <laughs> no way. What is that? What That's got to be like, what, seven and a half, eight hours? Nine, nine hours, I think. No. Yeah. My wife would bad. just bring me plates of food and I'd just be eating while riding. Yeah. And like, yeah, it was fun. Well, you know. It's funny because uh, I'm sure you've heard of all the Everest thing going on, right? Yeah, yeah. So during COVID, it was um, um, I wanted to do an Everest thing. Didn't end up doing it. Um, it's still on my kind of list. But and then you hear about the guys that Everest inside on the trainer, and I'm just like, oh my god, that sounds awful. Yeah, I'd like it's to do so it indoors, awful. just just to do it. But I definitely want to do it outdoors. Yeah, yeah, it uh, it would definitely it would I think it would add like just another level of of suffering to it. But you know, it simplifies logistics though. Um, yeah, it would make that piece just have like a windowsill full of energy gels and water bottles. Dude, just 100%. a pail beside you so you could piss in it. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're painting a good picture, Chris. <laughs> maybe maybe just get off and go to the washroom. That's an idea too. Um, yeah, so let's, uh, let's regress and go back to, um, so what are some of the things that you did that you, you kind of learned and you thought, oh, uh, they just weren't as functional or effective as, as, uh, um, in terms of like, in terms of kit setup, um, to be honest, um, I've never really had any major issues. Um, definitely when you're riding cold weather, it's like pogies are incredibly like a must have, right? Yeah. Um, I just got some, they're amazing. Like. Oh, dude. So what, which kind did you get? Uh, I got the 45 North. Um, okay. Yeah. Because I could get them through Brockton and, and I get a deal with them. So okay. super happy nice. though. Like, yeah. So I had, yeah, I initially had the 45 North and then I just found, I have a heart. I don't know about you, but like in terms of keeping my hands and feet warm, that's by far my biggest challenge. Same here. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's, I think it's a common issue. And so I, I kind of upgraded the pogies to um, uh, Revelate pogies and like, yeah, no issues now. Um, they're just like kind of another level of, of warmth I found. Oh, okay. And then same thing with, with feet. Like, so keeping the feet warm um, has always been a challenge. So uh, 45 North Wolfgar boots are, are what I use and I ride clipless pedals and 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 that's awesome. Like, how do you, how do you find, like, I was thinking about this when I went riding with some friends. I mean, I guess it depends if the, if the snow is mushy at all, it's just a pain in the ass. Cause you're constantly putting your foot down, like yes. sliding off the trail or whatever. Um, yes. so I, 
I guess clipless could be a bit of a pain that way, but otherwise, like, what's the um, it, like? It can be, and I ended up I ended up walking like a solid day on La Route Blanche. I would say in terms of like cumulative time, mm-hmm. and yeah, it, it does become a pain in the butt sometimes. But I would say like the overall benefit that you get when you're clipped in and riding is is totally worth it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Same reason yeah. I ride clipless all the time on outdoors like yeah, on normal it, normal bikes you're not fat but non-fat yeah, bikes yeah totally and so have you gone into like clipless on your fat bike yet? not yet no i just got some composite pedals i think that's been okay. a big game changer because i was using yeah. some that were metal and like okay. man they would just the, the cold would transfer through through my boots so fast yeah um composite has made a big improvement i can still yeah. feel it after about two hours out there like it's okay yeah. like i need to wiggle my toes or maybe get off and walk a bit just to yeah. get some circulation going <clears throat> and, and that's the other that's the other thing too so i've graded my aluminum bars to carbon bars mm. and i just got super plushy grips and i think that helped a lot with keeping my hands warm as well yeah i got some of the um i was gonna get ergon grips and okay. uh glenn at brockton was like dude i would recommend the wolf tooth mega fat paws he's like they're yeah. super comfy and nice. they're like yeah, they're pretty fat, but it doesn't matter. Like they're just so just so cozy so far. You know, I haven't yeah. used them long enough to have a real good say, but we'll see how it goes. Yeah, yeah, no, I th- I think that was pretty critical if you're riding in really cold weather. Um, so those are definitely some of the upgrades I made. Uh, I made over time, but in terms of like doing the fat pursuit, I would say that um, in terms of kit, like I, I don't really have any. I didn't really have any major issues. The thing that that crushed me on that race was the elevation that I was totally really unprepared for. Like it started out at 6,000 feet and we spent a good portion of the race up at 8,000 feet. And I was fine for 75% of the race. Um, and then it was the last kind of 25% that it just, I hit a wall. Okay. And, uh, oh yeah. I went from like solid, like, and we were also in the middle of a snowstorm. And I look back and you look at what your brain does just as a result of sleep deprivation and being tired. And like, I know how to manage tire pressure. Um, But as it started snowing, I didn't do a good job of adjusting the pressure that I've been riding with all day Okay. and lower the pressure for the change in conditions. And so, right. That, Cause as it's snowing, it's getting softer. So you want to lower the pressure and get a, just totally. a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And the weather had gotten a little bit warmer and it was dumping snow. Like it was, it was like a couple centimeters an hour for sure. And yeah, I was, I was not, I'm like, why am I pushing my bike so much? And then at like towards the end, I'm like, oh yeah, dummy, you might want to lower your tire pressure. And so it's eventually, eventually I did that, but it, it took a while for the things to, you know, um, uh, everything that kind of clue in, in my head. So that combined with the altitude, uh, really just kind of crushed me towards, towards the end of that race. Mm. Yeah. It was I feel a, like, it was to, long... I feel like as well, um, you know, a lot of times when we're on a ride, your, your instinct is to, you know, you're like, yeah, I could, I could pump up a little bit more air in my tires, for instance, on a bike. And you notice your tires a little bit over, you're like, whatever, I've only got a, you know, hundred kilometers to go or 50, you know, it doesn't feel like it's worth the time to do it, to stop and totally. put your bike and get your pump out and do all these things. But like, and even though tire pressure, you know, you just have to push the valves them and you know, the, and I, it, the air comes out, but the thought of like, okay, I got to stop and get off my bike and then I got to take those off and I got to take my gloves off. And, and yeah. it's very easy to talk yourself out of probably 
doing that thing that takes 30 seconds and just makes your life infinitely better. It is. It is totally. And especially when you're in a race setting, because you're like, okay, if I'm going to jump off my bike, I'm going to do this. Am I going to measure the tire pressure afterwards? And it's like, next thing you know, you know, it's a five minute endeavor. Obviously you get faster over time, but you're like, yeah, how much are they gaining like behind me? Is it worthwhile? Whereas I think, you know, going back in retrospect, I would say a hundred percent, if you think you need to change your tire pressure, yeah, you probably did 10 need to 10 kilometers and just do it now. Yeah. And it's going to pay the dividends down the road for sure. Before continuing on with the show, I'd like to thank Panorama Cycles for sponsoring this podcast. Panorama Cycles is a bicycle manufacturer in Quebec, Canada, dedicated to backcountry cyclists that prefer gravel, snow, and off-road trails. They believe cycling is a catalyst for adventures of all sizes, and that there's no need to travel across the world or to be a seasoned athlete to live epic outdoor adventures. Over the past year, I've been riding the Chickshocks Fat Bike, the Catadan Gravel Bike, and the Taiga Mountain Bike. From everyday rides, bikepacking trips, and a multitude of races and events, these bikes have put a huge smile on my face every step of the way, while also getting me on the podium on the Wendigo Ultra Fat Bike Race and help me set an FKT on the Canadian Shield 400. In partnering up with the Bike Pack Adventures podcast, Panorama Cycles also wants to give back to the cycling community, particularly you, the listeners of the podcast. By using the promo code BPA10 when purchasing a new bike from PanoramaCycles.com, you'll save 10%. For more information on their environmental commitments or to check out their bikes, head to PanoramaCycles.com. Now back to the show. Yeah. yeah. And I guess it's just experience to know what you should run your pressure. Like what's the highest you ever run your pressure? Um, see, that's my question. I'm right now. Mine's at like four and a half PSI, but I don't know what I would put it at a high end, you know, like what would be that high end? Well, I mean, so if, um, I would say like your happy place is usually anywhere between three and eight PSI on like groomed trails. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, if I'm riding my fat bike, like when I started the Route Blanche, like you're riding on basically like a snow covered, like gravel road, you know, that I was up at like 18, 19 PSI, okay, just which is cruising, the highest right? yeah. ever gone. And it feels like you're a rocket ship and you're just hauling ass. I bet you Samuel then, had a great time at that point. <laughs> oh my God. <clears throat> it's amazing. So when I was talking to Samuel, when, um, so I phoned him after he said, um, after I saw his post, like we did the Route Blanche and I was like, I have to get some info on this. And I phoned him and he was like, and I think he mentioned it on your podcast too, that they, they couldn't run any lower than 15 PSI. He said they kept leaking they were, air. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so that was like, I was like, Oh, okay. I, I, and I don't know what kind of a setup they had, mm-hmm. but uh, if you look back at that, I'm like, if I had had 15 PSI, I don't think I would have been able to ride any of low route blanche. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh Yeah. Like I was down. You'd be better um, off to put the tubes back in and then oh, a hundred percent. But I mean, a lot of it comes down to your, um, your tire setup specifically, mm-hmm. but I mean, in order to ride on like the really, you know, sketchy sections after like snow it was like, I rode as low as like one and a half, two PSI. Oh really? Oh, that low? Oh my God. Yeah. It was crazy. It I guess was it's like, just. Somebody told me, like, we were talking to this, this uh, British-sounding lady the other day who was giving us shit for destroying the trails. And um, <laughs> she was saying, we were asking her, like, how low to go. And she says, well, you know, if your tire starts crinkling up with wrinkles, it's a little too low. But as long as it's not doing that, you're okay. And we're like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know what? I would, say, I would say that you can go way lower than that. I mean, um, so, yeah, I mean, your tire can crinkle up for sure. Um but I had like, 
like my bike was loaded. So my, I, it was an 85 to 90 pound bike by right, the end of it. Right. And, and I was riding one, like the lowest I saw, I think was like pretty darn close to one and a half PSI. Um, and it's totally, it was totally rideable. And in some cases that was the only thing that allowed me to keep riding. Right. It was either, okay, I walk and push my bike at, yeah. you know, three to four kilometers an hour. And that's probably being generous. Uh, or I just air down as low as I dare go and, and, and still be able to ride my bike at like, you know, six, seven kilometers an hour type thing. Yeah. So it's a huge difference. And don't yeah. get me wrong. Yeah, and it's not walking without like walking in the snow is hard work, you know, like just the, the, every, every step, your foot slips back just a little bit as you're pushing off. And it's like, you know, yes. it's a, it's a, it's a body destroyer. So I think if you're at the point where you, you can manage that and stay on your bike, I guess that's the ideal situation, right? It, it's, I, I can't remember where I read it, but anyway, it's like, as long as you're riding, as long as you're on your bike physically, you're doing pretty darn well. Um, especially when it comes to fat biking and kind of changing conditions. And you're right. If you're off your bike because you can't ride it, chances are you're walking in some, you know, some pretty deep snow, right? Yeah. So now you're doing that and then you're pushing, you know, your, your fully loaded bike beside you. And yeah, it becomes a significant effort. Yeah, for sure. And your pace just slows down. Yeah, completely. Mm. And I think that's the biggest trip with some of these long distance races and rides because I mean, when you're riding on the road, it's like, okay, you might have the wind in your face, you might start going up a hill, and certainly your pace is going to slow, but it's never going to be as slow as like, you know, walking beside a fat bike where you're like, you know, previously you were going like 12, whatever kilometers an hour, and now you're going two kilometers an hour. And that like, you know, the end goal that is like, okay, uh, I was looking at three hours to get there. And now I'm looking at like 12 hours. It's just the biggest mind trip. Yeah. It's the hardest thing to just, get over in changing conditions. Yeah. yeah. If you don't have a strong mind game, that's, that's what'll just kill you. Like not me, not literally, but maybe literally who knows. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean like any endurance sports, right. I mean, the mental piece is, uh, is, is a big part mm-hmm. of it. Right. So. Yeah. yeah. So after these two events, um, that was like 2018 and 19, right? And yeah, uh, right. what, yeah. at what point did you decide, like, how did you hear about the Route Blanche and, uh, what made you decide to go for this? The main reason I got into it was cause, um, so I was supposed to do like my third, my third race. So it would have been like kind of one every year. And it was the mm. Arrowhead, the Arrowhead 135 in Minnesota. And I was registered for that. And then a month before, so we had like our kind of, I don't know, whatever wave of COVID it was that hit like around Christmas last year and a bunch more restrictions came into place. And and I knew that getting across the border for the race and back had the potential for me like isolating in Northern Minnesota for two weeks, which, you know, just wasn't really an option for me at the time. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to knock this one off. I'm not going to do the arrowhead. And I'm like, I'd been looking at La Route Blanche for a little while. And I was like, this is the perfect time. This is the perfect time to do it. I'm going to take all the time and effort that I'd put into training for the Arrowhead. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to do La Route Blanche. <clears throat> Wild. Yeah. I just saw a, um, a post on, uh, I don't know, I forget which Instagram, but anyways, uh, these two Danish guys are going to be cycling, fat biking across Greenland from across the glacier. No. And I had been talking about this for like two, three years, even though when I didn't have a fat bike, I'm like, I want to do this. Like, I want to be the first. I think it'd be amazing to take a fat bike. Uh, so they're going to be the first. But yeah, that looks so badass. 
but like just imagine the difficulties and the logistics because it's probably the it's probably a thousand kilometers. I forget. I've, I've read it before. I forget what the distance is that typically people when they cross yeah. Greenland. I think it's like a thousand kilometers, but it's a fucking like ice cap. <laughs> you know, it's a glacier. It's not smooth, easy going. This is going to be like ice climbing and pulling bikes up ice cliffs and like insanity. Like, but amazing. Well- you know, I think there's an Italian guy that has plans to do that, um, and he might be doing it as we speak, type thing. Oh. Uh, down in Antarctica, like oh, I think. His yeah, I saw somebody got there. Me. I saw a post of something, but yeah, you did. Hey, okay, because I saw that, and I'm like, and I'd previously read a book about a guy that skis uh, unsupported across Antarctica, mm-hmm. and it just sounds like the terrain is wild. You know, you get these wind drifts of snow built up. Mm-hmm. visibility goes to zero and like to imagine doing that on a fat bike like you know you've ridden a fat bike you know that like your best conditions are i have a nicely groomed trail do you know what i mean like yeah. a snowmobile's ripped by and it's gotten cold well, they do they have a road that goes to antarctica too like to that that goes to the south pole there's a there is a and i wouldn't call it a road there's a path that trucks and like snowmobiles and stuff go down <laughs> But, uh, so that wouldn't be so bad, but if you're riding across just like you know barren, uh, untreated Antarctica, sure like that would that. be. Yeah, I, I think you're going to be walking beside your bike. More well, I heard of somebody doing it on a on a trike that they set up with big fat bike tires, and that way they could actually just like sit and ride a lot. Um, oh wow! I forget who it was though. Um, I don't even remember if it was a guy or a woman. Um, but yeah, okay. somebody did it a couple of years ago or a few years back. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so you decided to do the the route blanche in lieu of doing a uh, another fat bike race in uh, Minnesota. Yeah, and, basically. Uh, and you said you you decided to put a rack on and do it seemingly fully unsupported, like that was end to end unsupported, or did you stop so, at a cat chalets, cabins, food restaurants? So it's funny. So that was my initial goal. Is like okay, I want to basically treat this. Um, to be essentially similar to like the Iditarod 350 mile version, the distances are relatively similar. That's quite similar. Yeah. Yeah, And so I just wanted to do it as fast as I could. Um, and naive, I don't want to say naive. Well, yeah, maybe naively. I'm like, okay, I also wanted to do it unsupported. And I'm like, so I'm thinking like, how long is the thing actually going to take me? I'm like, okay, I think I can do it, you know, pretty easily in five days. Um, uh, do, you know, hundred kilometers a day, I thought was something that was, that was pretty doable. Mm. Um, and then, so that was, that was essentially the idea. And so load the bike up, get fully ready for that. But I had no idea what, like the weather had in store. So, and I knew it was going to be completely, um, variable based on, mm-hmm. on what conditions were going to be like in terms of, uh, in terms of the weather, but there was a solid storm that went through and dumped a bunch of snow before I got up there. Um, and then like halfway through the route itself. And so like my, my idea of going completely unsupported fell apart to some extent. Um, Oh, I don't know, probably like three, four days, four days into it type thing. Mm-hmm. And like I had to pop into a refuge while the storm was going through. I hunkered down there one night and as a result, the whole thing took me a little bit longer than yeah. I thought. And so I'm banking on, on essentially, you know, five days. Five days was like the food that I had with me, 
was um, the gas that I had for my stove in order to melt snow to make water. And then the whole thing just ended up taking a little bit longer. Um, so towards the end, I ended up popping into like, a, um, you know, uh, just like a gas station type store, resupplying with a few things. So, and then the other thing is like the people, Samuel talked about it a little bit, but like the people who were out there, so the Root Blanche is like... Yeah, let's tell us more about the Root, because I think a lot of people that listen to this will just be like, oh, okay, it sounds like a white Root, and what does that mean? Yeah, right. So so what it is, essentially, it's a, a series of communities, essentially, on you know the lower North Shore of the St. Lawrence, which is really like quite far up there. Um, and it essentially starts um, at a town called Natashkawan, and then it goes all the way up to Blanc Sablon. And Blanc Sablon was really like right across, uh, right across from Labrador. So you're essentially, you know, you're quite far up there. Yeah, and it's, um, and it's 450 kilometers. So yeah, it's um, so from start to finish, I think it's like 480 kilometers, of which I want to say close to 100 or, or, or gravel. Okay, and then the rest is essentially snowmobile track that is laid in, obviously uh, only in winter. So you can't ride this thing in the summer, uh, unfortunately, because it would be a pretty fun trip to do in the summer if you had a gravel road connecting this. Fat bike with a pack raft. Yes. Well, <sighs> fat bike with a pack raft to do it in the summer? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just guessing. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to think about that because it's, it's going to be swampy, though. Like it might not even be able to ride like to the edge of where the water is because it could just be like I, I think you'd be riding like 10 percent of it and yeah. then uh yeah yeah i don't know that's an interesting idea chris maybe an adventure for next summer could be um but no like the whole thing is on waterways for the most part inlets and lakes etc like i think 80 percent of the route blanche is once everything freezes up and it takes quite a while for that to actually happen like the route didn't actually open mm. until uh, I think mid February or something like that last year, it was really quite late, I think. So, and then what they do is essentially the ministry of, uh, of transportation in Quebec essentially puts in a snowmobile path um, that essentially connects all these communities um, and people rip around there on their snowmobiles getting from, uh, from town to town. Um, and then like the awesome upside of that um, is like, as you know, from riding a fat bike, you need something that's groomed. Yeah. You can't just go out and ride in fresh powder. Um, it just doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. So it's one of the few snowmobile trails uh, in Canada or in Quebec that you can actually, you can actually ride on. Cause I don't know what Ontario is like, but up here, if you go try and ride on one of the like local, um, the local group, snowmobile trail it's like dude you you can't do it at all yeah uh, i i learned the hard way because when i made the uh, canadian shield bikepacking route i didn't know at that time that you couldn't you know you're not allowed to ride bikes on four-wheeler tra- uh, atv trails um okay. unless they're on i think public lands so like a lot of them go on private lands and you're not allowed you know um, okay. or something like that you're not allowed to cross-country ski on snowmobile trails. It's all about safety for those that are going faster. Obviously, not nothing to do with rights for cyclists. It's just yes. that's the way it is. Yeah, um, right. So, I mean, I had to do a lot of rejigging of my routes and stuff as I learned that and then rewrite it and then make some more corrections, and that's how it goes. But, um, 
yeah, it's a definite downside. So I guess like the Route Blanche is this one place where you actually have this perfect place that's groomed. It is. And the only reason is because, you know, um, is because it's it's essentially serviced by, you know, the Ministry of Transportation because essentially, you know, people up there need some way of connecting these communities in order mm-hmm. to support their way of life. So it is just this awesome benefit that it is something that is totally rideable uh, and totally skiable uh, in the winter. And we should but make it not- clear, too, that, like, in the summer, they have no road access. So it is boats, planes. Yeah. And that's it, you know, like hundred percent, which is crazy. Yeah. Like, it's just hard yeah. to imagine, like probably for 95% of the people in the world would be like, what do you mean? There's no access, you know? <laughs> I know. I know. Um, so it's pretty unique in that respect because when you that think is. about the U S is, is, is the U S is a bit of a different beast because in the U S you can ride on the snowmobile trails and all the races that I did down in the States are on snowmobile trails. So mm-hmm. you can do these massive fat bike, combination bike packing routes whereas in quebec at least it's pretty rare to find those because you know your usual access which is these snowmobile trails you just can't ride on here because yeah. if you you know like you like you which is interesting out. though because in the summer bicycles are allowed on snowmobile trails because they're like even if they're unless they're like a multi-use snowmobile atv trail as long as it's not an ATV trail, bicycles are allowed on. So you could make a route that goes down a snowmobile trail in the summer. But I guess uh, yeah. I never thought of that in winter. You wouldn't be allowed. No, I don't know. And Because, uh, I mean, the reason up here in Quebec is because, you know, you pay for your snowmobile insurance. You pay for trail access fees, etc. Mm-hmm. You as a biker are obviously not paying for any of that stuff. Um, but I don't know in the summer when you're on an ATV I, I don't know if you have to pay for any. I'm not an ATV guy. So I think you do. Sure. I think you have a license and insurance and all that stuff too. You do, you hey? to, yeah, okay. I believe so. Um, in Quebec. Anyways. So yeah, <clears throat> I'm not too sure. So, you know, it'd be awesome. It'd be awesome if they were to open some of these things up to, to fat bikes and, and the cross country skiing. And, you know, I'm probably mm-hmm. going to piss a bunch of people off by saying that, but, uh, but it would be pretty incredible and it'd open up yeah, like yeah. these amazing spots. Right. Have you heard of the Wendigo ultra? Dude, that's uh, it. It is my plan to do that at the end of January. Are you coming up? Yeah, I think. Sorry, no, it's the end of February. Isn't uh, it? End of February. Yes, it's the end of February. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so that was a plan. So I was taking a look online because, uh, like, like you know, there's not too many of these ultra fat bike mm-hmm. races in Canada. So uh, I think that I think that's the plan, man. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. If you need, uh, if you need a place to stay on either end, there, you're more than welcome to. Dude, thanks. Right you're doing it as well. Yeah, I haven't I haven't registered and I haven't decided on the distance yet, mainly because. <laughs> You know, my, my personality is always to go hard. Yeah. Um, so I'm clearly, my mind is thinking like I should do the 100 or 200, you know? Um, but at the same time, I have like a series of friends of maybe six or seven people I know that are riding in. They're all doing the 50 yeah. this year. And I'm like, oh, it would also be kind of cool just to chill with friends and have a nice, a nice ride day, you know, event. Yeah. But. I don't know. I got to, I got to do some soul searching first. Cause I know deep down I'm the kind of guy that I just want to, I like to, if I'm going to pay money, especially I'm one of those guys that likes to go hard and like just push my body to the limit. And yeah. so probably a so hundred, I'll probably do the hundred, but I'm not sure. So I think the answer there for is to probably just do the 200 and just, just yeah. go all in. You know what I mean? <laughs> it could be, it could be, I don't have all the kit that you might need. I do have an army sleeping bag though. So that could be my extra mm-hmm. layer to make uh, my, 
Yeah, I was going to, like, their kit list, so I was looking at their kit list. Um, it's not too crazy, I don't think. Like, I think the biggest, um, I think you need a bivy, right? You need a cold-weather sleeping bag for sure. Um, do you need a stove? I'm trying to remember. I don't remember. Yeah, I don't yeah. think you do. But... Yeah, but I, I I don't think the kit list is as exhausting, as exhaustive as uh, as some of the other races mm. that I've been in. So I don't think it would be, I don't think it would be too bad. Um, but I don't know. I don't know enough about the route to be totally yeah, honest yeah. with you. Other than other than that, I'd like to do it for for the challenge. But um, in terms of scenery, etc., I don't know how. Yeah, a lot of it's uh, a lot of it's the um, the old rail trail, which okay. also in Ontario there they have skidoo access, so it's it's ridden by skidoos. From what I've heard from people, is in the morning it's pretty good because it hasn't been churned up by the skidoos yet. So yeah. by afternoon when they've all come bombing through, then it's kind of muckier and it's a, it definitely slows you down. But yeah, for sure. I mean, and that's the other thing with just um, it was the same for me on La Route Blanche. It was it was a bit of a warm spell there for a while, and so I ended up doing so much of my riding uh, at night um, just because the trail conditions were better. There weren't snowmobiles going through. And it was significantly colder. And you had a, you could see from miles away if they're coming, you know? So, <laughs> yeah, I'll, you, have, you do totally. But funny story. So I was, I was riding at night one night and I have like, you know, I've got the front light on and I've got, I normally have like the rear blinky, the red blinky on the back, um, which you need for all these races too, for like very good reason. And it was my third night. I think of riding and up till then I'd, uh, I'd always had this light on in the back. I'm like, man, it's my third night. Literally like one snowmobile has gone by me at night. Cause it does not see a lot of traffic at night. I'm like, I'm not even putting the blinky on and I'm just cruising on. And like the other thing is I, I, I listen to music when I ride, like I just have mm-hmm. to. So I'm listening to music. I got the tunes going. I don't have any lights on in the back. And then it's just literally, I just see this kind of flood of light all of a sudden in front of me. And I look back and I had like a headlamp on, like, thank goodness. I look back and then the snowmobile, like, I don't want to say he missed me, but like he slowed down and he like, he got right beside me and he's like, dude, he was like, that was close. He's like, I did not see you at all. He's like, until you turned around and I saw your headlamp, he's like, Oh, I don't know, man. It wouldn't have been pretty. Right. Oh, wow. And I was like, I felt so bad. I felt awful because I'm like, man, I'm on using your guys snowmobile trails. This is where you guys live. Yeah. And, you know, Next thing you know, there's a ban on fat bikers because some asshole was out there <laughs> yeah, without lights on and got totally, killed. <laughs> and I've totally ruined it for everyone else who wants to do La Route Blanche. I'm sorry. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that was like, you know, I was like, and he, he was a little bit angry at me, like initially, like very rightly so. And I'm like, dude, I'm so sorry. You're totally right. Um, you know, totally my bad. So did you guys have a stop and chat? Like, was that it or? Yeah, like briefly, like we talked for like one or two minutes. Yeah. And that's the other thing I've got to say about about riding this thing and trying to ride it fast is that there's so many amazing people out there and you're such a novelty on a fat bike. Like literally mm. Samuel and Felix Antoine, when they went through two years ago, yeah, are the only guys that have gone through there on a fat bike. Uh, and then I go through a year later and everyone wants to talk to you. And I want to stop and talk to everyone. It's yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Like, man, I'm trying to go. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, you know, make good time. Cause I know there's a storm coming in and I'm trying to do it unsupported, but everyone's like, 
do you want some muffins? Do you want some cookies? Like, I'll run and grab you a thermos of coffee. And I'm like, that would be so amazing. You have no (laughs) idea how much I want something besides my crappy instant coffee right now. But you're like, uh, you try and half-heartedly explain what unsupported means. And, you know, they're vaguely getting it. But, like, do you want a coffee? I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't accept it. I think, like, an ITT, you know... Um, unsupported means not supported by your friends or family. So I, mm-hmm. I, that's how I feel. Like, you know, if you're, if you're racing in something, you're doing ITT and kindness, uh, you know, random acts of kindness from strangers doesn't count, you know, because you're out there, you're also trying to promote the sport and, and, you know, get people interested in what you're doing. So yeah. say, saying no can awfully be, can also be really hard, especially, you know, it's it's easier here because you can explain yourself. But imagine trying to be in Turkey and explain to somebody that no, I don't want your oh, your totally. tea. You know, I don't want to have lunch totally. with your family or whatever. You know. And there's so many depending on what category you're. In, there's so many different versions of unsupported, right? Yeah. Um, and that was like that was where my unsupported went totally out the window. Is is um, it's a pretty funny story. So. Uh, I stop early one day because I know there's a big storm coming through and they're going to get like 20 centimeters yeah. of snow. So I stop in one of the, like La Route Blanche, there's these refuges. Yeah. Uh, tell us a bit about little, them. Cause I'm looking at the map right now and it's like, I love it. They have longitudes and latitudes. So like you can find them no matter oh. what on, on the map, it shows everything. So that in the event of like whiteout, you could follow yeah. a GPS to the location. You can't, you can't miss them, right? You can't miss them. And the other thing is the route is really nicely laid. Probably every 10 meters or so, they've essentially got wooden stakes in the ground that probably go up like eight feet high that essentially delineate, you know, your snowmobile traffic left and right. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so that marks the whole route blanche. And then every, I mean, it varies quite a bit. Sometimes every 20 kilometers, sometimes it's, you know, they're spaced out a little bit farther yeah. or a little bit less. They've got these small little refuges, which is really just, it's a bench, and then you have a stove in there, but and, and it's stocked with wood. But certainly for a place to, to spend the night in a storm, like, it's perfect. Um, and so what I end up doing is, like, uh, as the storm hits, basically, so I duck into one of these refuges. I hang on my, like, I light the stove. I hang on my stuff up to dry. Like, I brought my fat bike in there, which takes up, like, half of this little mm-hmm. this little chalet type thing. And it's a funny story. So I had a spot with me. So um, because I was kind of publicizing this thing uh, on Facebook, because um, we were doing it for we were doing it for charity, which is a bit mm. of another story, which I'll talk to you maybe in sure. a bit. Sure, yeah, we can talk about that. But um, I was I was usually pretty good about, and I didn't have a fancy spot. It wasn't one of the ones where you can type out like a text message. And yeah, send yeah, just it. the Gen three. Yeah, or, it was basically yeah. like so. I'm stopping for the night type thing, and then I would turn my spot off to save battery. But on this particular day, like my wife is tracking me. She knows there's a storm coming in, and I forgot to hit the like, hey, I'm stopping for the day, and I just turned my spot off. And the last hit she sees from it is like, it's all lakes and rivers up there for the most part, but essentially it's on the edge of a lake and she doesn't see my spot again. And so she's like, did he go in through the ice? And so she calls, um, she calls uh, someone up there who's a ranger. His name is Daryl Ransom, incredible guy. She calls Daryl and she's like, I'm freaking out because I, my husband's spot stopped tracking I think he might have gone through the ice or something. Do you have someone who can go out there on a snowmobile in the middle of this crazy storm, by the way, to check on him? 
So I'm like, meanwhile, I know none of this. I'm in my little refuge. I've laid out my sleeping bag. I'm like listening to an audio book on my, on my iPod and like the door bursts open and in walks this guy, like totally clad, big fur hat on massive jacket or whatever. And he's like, you rich. And I'm like, yeah, that's me. I'm like, who are you? He's like, my wife sent me or my wife or your wife sent me. He's like, do you want a Bud Light? I'm like, damn, I was supposed to be doing this thing. Yeah, I'll have a bad light. Absolutely. So that was where my like unsupported um, like, w- w- fell off really was was because of a bud light. Uh, um, so this guy, his name is Clint. Uh, he's, a, he's an amazing dude. So he lived in one of the communities close by. So he comes out to check on me. We have a we have a beer together. And, uh, and we spent like 20 minutes just shooting the shit. And he's an awesome dude. That's so funny. Um, yeah, so that was that was one of the funnier stories. And, and I know that Samuel mentioned that a lot of the communities there are actually very, very English, right? They're they're basically everybody speaks English, or yeah, like that's uh, yeah, totally true statement. I mean, most of the people that I that I came across um, were English speakers, some French speakers uh, for sure. A lot of uh, like small native towns in and around there uh, as well. Yeah, no, oh, it's wild. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, yeah, and so what are some of the communities like that you go through on the route? You know, it's funny, Chris, because I only went through like two of the communities because most of them are off the trail. A little oh, are bit. they? Okay. Yeah, and so for me, that would have been going off trail, losing time. I know I'm not going to resupply it in any yeah, right. places anyway, so I didn't stop at too many of them. Um, I stopped at oh man I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to think of the name uh, right now hold on uh, let me pull out the map La Romaine so I stopped in La Romaine or I went through La Romaine it was like eleven o'clock at night mm-hmm. um, which is a, a, a native town mm-hmm. and everyone there was again like fat bike riding through town at eleven o'clock at night in the middle of the beginning of yeah. March they're like what the hell are you doing. And so I got to talk to some pretty cool people. Was that uh, your first day? It's 50, 57 K into the, the route, I guess, ish. Yeah, that was, I mean, so I started, I think my first day, um, was about, so I started in the Tashquan. And then if you're looking, if you're looking at the map, I essentially went to refuge six there. So, um, just a little bit past La Romaine. Yeah. Cause Natashquan is probably like Kagashka is probably kind of halfway between Natashquan and La Romaine, right? More or less. Uh, yeah, pretty or, much. Or maybe between uh, Refuge even 6. Even a little bit more. Like I yeah. think Natashquan to Kagaska. Um, yeah, it doesn't even have Natashquan on here because that's technically before the start yeah, of the route. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's 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 not far from Natashquan to Kagaska. It's like, 50 I don't K know. Or something. Yeah, something like that, somewhere between 50 and uh, and 60K, I okay. think. And that was like the easiest riding for me. So that was day one. I'm riding on essentially a gravel road, and it's I'm just everything's cruising by. Yeah, because that's highway one. I, that's highway 138, kind of. Exactly. Thing, right? Yeah. Exactly. And so I get to Kagaska, and I still don't know what the route blanche is really going to be mm. like in terms of riding conditions. And I just had Samuel's kind of um, like I chatted with him just over the phone um, about their expedition the year before. And I know there's just been a ton of snow and I really have no idea what to expect. And then I, I start on like this little trail that goes out of Kagaska and 
it's just really just leading to the airport. And it was, I was riding fast and I was like, wow, this is a piece of cake. I'm like, <laughs> this is what the whole trail is like. I'm like, I'm going to be done this thing in like two days. I'm going to spend the rest of my time off like backcountry skiing or something like that. Famous last words. Huh? <laughs> right. And then, and then it was like, wham, I got to the real snowmobile trail and it, like I said, they'd had like 15 centimeters of fresh snow maybe a handful of snowmobiles had been through and I was pushing my bike. I essentially spent the rest of that day until the evening till things actually like, uh, uh, froze up a little bit, Mm. essentially pushing my bike, uh, through all that. And that was like that mental, that mental piece that I was talking about before where you're like, okay, is this ride that was going to be like maybe five days in my mind, am I now going to be pushing my bike here for like the next 10 days or something like that? Wow. That was the biggest mind trip. Yeah. What were the logistics to uh, getting to Natashkwan? Did you just drive a car and what about getting yeah, back so from just, Blanc Sablon? That was honestly one of the smoothest things about the whole thing. Like I drove my car from here in the Saguenay. It's about a 12 hour drive to Natashkwan. I essentially parked my car there. And then when I got to Blanc Sablon, um, I'd essentially booked a flight like six days after I parked my car. Um, and I was going to fly back one way, essentially from Blanc Sablon to Natashkwan. Mm. And so as it was, like I, I ended up pulling into Blanc Sablon on like, I don't know, 9 or 10 p.m. or something like that. And then my flight was at like 11 or 12 the next day. So I kind of I kind of just made it and actually logistically it worked out. It worked out perfectly. And that was the kind of the cool thing is flying back from Blanc Sablon to Natashkwan is like, you're just ripping over all these hard earned miles yeah. in a plane and you're looking down, you're like, it looks amazing. And it's so easy from the air. You know what I mean? What kind of airplanes do they have is it just like sea otters and stuff or, um, or they have like proper, you know, I'm like, a pilot yeah. and I'm just, you know, I'm not sure. They were, you know, twin engine turbo props that can probably hold like they, I think they were probably King Airs. Okay. Um, twin engine turbo props that can hold, you know, I think like twelve people. It was funny. I was the only passenger on one of the flights. Like I did it yeah. in two hops, and I was like the only passenger in one of the flights. And I'd heard horror <clears> stories. Um, uh, like when I was talking to the airline booking, they're like, "Yeah, we might not be able to take your bike on the same flight, so you might be able to get back there, but your bike might follow a couple days later when the next flight leaves." And I'm like, <laughs> "Oh my god, that sounds like a nightmare." You know what I mean? Uh, as it was, like no problem. Got the bike on the plane. It was like the easiest. Um, that was like the easiest part of the whole thing. Yeah. Did they just put it on, or did you? Have, you didn't have to really wrap it up or anything, or box it up, or what? No, do? I took the I took my panniers off. I think I twisted my handlebars ninety degrees, and that was it. Like, yeah, because like was, I had a buddy who wanted to uh, to ride to um, Tuk Tuk Tuk. Okay. And I was like, well, you know, I would probably fly to, uh, oh, is it Inuvik? Which, uh, Inuvik? Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah. I would fly up there, then ride up to Tuktoyaktuk, and then ride home. Because, like, if you if you ride up there, you're not going to find a bike box to pack your bike in. So, like, now you got, like, no. one more thing to deal with. Why not fly there first? So, you know, did you ever consider that, like, instead of driving, drive to Natashkwan, but then fly straight away to Blanc Sablon and then ride back? Was that something you ever considered or just didn't really? It wasn't because I guess in the end I'd be doing this, I'd be doing the same thing kind of. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I'd be, I'd be flying one way. Yeah, yeah exactly. 
Um, and then the other thing is like riding from, so the, it was, it was windy as heck, but the prevailing oh. winds are essentially mm. out of the Southwest. So I'm like, I'm riding with the winds. Right. I did I thought, not want to ride back. Mm, I mistook. Yeah. I thought you were out for a challenge. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's some things I was trying to, you know, yeah. I was trying to make easier. <laughs> hey, maybe next time, maybe uh, next time I'll ride into the head. And so, yeah, you use the Wolfgar boots. Um, do you use anything else like these? Um, oh, what the heck do they call them? I just lost the word, but the uh, impermeable membrane socks, like Gore-Tex socks or these uh, plastic no, bags no. in your shoes or. You know what? Like I did, I did the plastic bag in the shoes for the first three days, I think. And then it just got to be a pain in the ass because the bag kept kind of slipping down into my boot. Yeah, yeah. And then it would kind of bunch up. And I'm like, man, this isn't working well at all. So I just got rid of that completely. And I went without the vapor barrier for the last three days. And I didn't have any issues, to yeah, be no totally issues. honest. Yeah, the wolf guards no. are really good, right? So, like, I've heard really good things. They are. Really They're really good, good. But, I mean, most of the nights, like, um, so I spent, I think, total of three. I ended up spending three nights in the refuges and the, la- the other – the other nights I was bivying. So, I mean, when it's like you talk about moisture management and like it, it's, it's a hundred percent important because, um, you know, if you're riding all day, you're sweating into your gear mm-hmm. and you climb into your bivy or your tent or whatever at night and that stuff's not warm, it's just going to freeze. And then you're stepping into that stuff in the morning. So in terms of like the logistics of like stopping riding, getting all your stuff off, jumping into the bivy and taking like, you know, um, the insulation of your boot with you. Like that's an absolute must. Like you have to do that. And that yeah. goes into the sleeping bag with you, like along with your water. Do you know what I mean? So it doesn't necessarily make for like the most comfortable nights. Um, sometimes. Yeah. You want to make sure you have um, a big, not just an emergency bivy. <laughs> yeah. D- don't do the emergency bivy. Yeah. So I have an outdoor research um, helium, I think is what it is. Yeah. And it's nice because it's kind of got like a little bit of a headspace. Right. So it's like, yeah, it's pretty streamlined. Then it's got a little bit of a headspace above you. So it doesn't feel entirely. And you can leave the face area open with like the netting, right? So you can still get some, like the the air can breathe outwards. Yeah. Yeah. Although I'm going to like most of the time when I was in that thing, like it was reasonably cold outside. So I'd crack a little bit just to let some of the moisture Mm -hmm. out. But other than that, I was I was keeping it sealed pretty okay. much uh, pretty much the whole time. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And what do you use for a sleeping bag? So I had it's funny. Um, I was borrowing like I'm a pretty tall guy. Um, you can't tell, but uh, so I was borrowing my brother's um, cold weather sleeping bag, and that's what I've always used on any of these races. But I've had, okay. I've never used it in anger, right? And then so. <laughs> while I was doing the training for the route blanche, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm definitely going to go ahead and use this thing. And I went out into like a couple really cold nights. And, uh, one night I just, I froze my ass off and this was like a minus 30 bag, but it's a 20 year old bag. Right. Mm-hmm. So I froze my ass off and I'm like, okay, I got to upgrade my sleeping bag. So I got a, I got a North face Inferno, like long bag yeah. uh, because my brother's was like a regular size bag, which like, uh, I totally don't recommend if you're a, if you're a bigger dude. So I got the long bag and I got the minus forty Inferno, and that worked out really well. That worked out really well for the trip. Oh, like I was never cold at night. Yeah, 
I didn't know fighter pilots could be tall. I thought they had to be like under six feet or something. Yeah, right. I'm definitely on the taller on the taller end of that spectrum. Yeah, they're like, sure. yeah. If the, yeah. if you have to eject, you might lose your knees from like, legs from the knees down. <laughs> Man, Chris, the amount of times I've heard that as being a possibility. Yeah, yeah. it's just one of those things you live with. Yeah. Yeah. You'd be like that guy in Forrest Gump in the wheelchair. People are like, oh, he's just the angry Air Force guy who lost his legs ejecting. Ah, <laughs> uh, totally, totally. Um, oh, yeah. So, uh, so yeah. Um, you know, because I know Samuel and them for this trip, they're using. Um, oh, I forget the name of them, but instead of like you know your normal felt liners, they're using these like oh, whatever. They, what these these liners that are yes. closed cell foam and. Uh, and don't absorb any moisture. They absorb right? no moisture. Like, yeah. yeah, man, those things must be. And, you know, I heard you guys talking about it on, on that podcast a couple weeks ago, and I'm like, man, that sounds amazing. But, yeah, it was the first time I've ever heard of those, okay. to be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I I didn't know they make them for Baffin boots. I mean, I didn't even know Baffin, Baffin boots that they're using. They make some for, like, um, the kind of skiing they're doing. I didn't even know that they made boots for that, you know? So it's quite yeah, interesting. I had no idea either. Yeah. I had no idea either. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know of any cool. companies making like uh, those kind of liners for boots that would be clipless, <laughs> which would be pretty cool. No. And I wonder if you could do like a custom fit or something like that for the Wolfgars. Like I know most people, um, most people tend to run some sort of vapor barrier. Um, certainly if you're doing mm-hmm. like the Iditarod 1000 where you're out there for, um, you know, like between 15 and 20 days, yeah. you probably want to do a better job controlling your moisture, but I'm not going to lie. I, I didn't have, I didn't have really any issues with it um, in terms of that. Yeah. I still get cold feet. I'm hoping, uh, like my brother's got my Gore-Tex socks and he forgot them at Christmas. So he's going to, okay. he's going to bring them from Petawawa next time. So probably mid January, but I think that'll yeah. change my whole foot game because at the moment, if I'm out there for a couple hours, my feet, do start to get a bit cold, even with a plastic bag and stuff. It's just, you know, after yeah. at some point you're going to get cold. Well, the other thing is like ordering the, uh, ordering the boots, a couple sizes too big. Yeah. So you can just throw a couple <laughs> extra pairs of socks in there. And then that definitely helps out mm-hmm, as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and yeah. the other thing is just as you're riding, it's like, I do the same thing with like my fingers and my toes is just, I'm just constantly kind of moving my fingers and toes on really cold days just to keep the circulation yeah, going. Yeah. Cause if it, yeah, if you don't keep it going, it can, it can be pretty rough. Yeah. I was concerned with gloves cause I, I picked up some outdoor research gloves. Um, I was going to get the 45 Norths and once again, yeah. Glenn at uh, Brockton was like, dude, I recommend the outdoor research ones. They're really good. Cause yeah. they have a light, they have a small liner that you can also wear inside the glove. And then if you're wearing just the glove, well, it's still fleece lined, but it's not, you know, it's not as thick. So yeah. it's, and it's pretty sweet. Um, I feel like with the liner on, though, it might be a little bit snug, but maybe they'll wear in a little bit as a, over the first year. Yeah, like I tend to, on the really cold days, like a lot of the time with pogies, you can just have like your own liner glove. Like yeah. I have a pair of 45 North liners that I wear in there. And that's, to be honest, what I was riding most of the time. Yeah. Um, and what, unless it's really cold. I find if it's below... If it's below like minus 25 or something like that, then I need to have like a full mm-hmm. up like ski glove. And I really yeah. just use normal ski gloves uh, in there. Okay. But I think 45 North makes a nice pair of like the lobster gloves. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. So I got my outdoor research are lobster. The one thing I, I, so when I was looking and researching to these is 45 North makes, you know, the three small fingers are together. Your index yeah. is its own individual and thumb is individual. But like Blivet, which is from Quebec, 
Yeah. They make one that's like two, two, and one. And I thought, in my mind, that's better because at least two fingers are always warming each other up. Yeah. But maybe because your pinky and ring finger are pretty small that they're, it makes more sense to have it as three. I don't know. I don't know what the, the sense is there. Yeah, but, I don't know what the logic would be behind that either, to be honest yeah. with you. yeah. But I haven't tried out the Blivet ones, but I saw that uh, when it comes to the, the gloves, they – their glove comes with two different liners. One's a 200 gram, okay. one's a 300 gram. So depending on the temperature, you can switch out your nice. liners. Or if you get wet and sweaty, you can switch them out and they, you know they're going to fit your glove, which is pretty sweet. That's a good way of doing it. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, when it gets super cold like that, um, if I'm running like a heavy glove in there and that's still not, is like, I'll just crack those, um, you know, those hot pocket thingies, what do you call them? Yeah, exactly. And you throw those in there. And then if that's not doing the trick, then yeah, it's, it's, super cold <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's time to stop riding probably. Yeah. Hey, have you, yeah. uh, have you used like heated insoles or socks or anything like that? I haven't just, just cause I'm skeptical of using something that I'm not going to be able to use on like a long distance ride because of like, like these things all run on battery. Right. Right. And are you going to be able to plug that in and charge it when you're, wherever you know what i mean yeah especially if you think like the iti and there's when you stop at a cabin and there's 10 other people that are trying to charge stuff and it's like no no i need to plug my socks guys (laughs) and maybe because i just haven't heard any success stories about the long distance racers using any of that kind of stuff either i wonder like uh i have yet to have it be like too cold where it's like okay um what i'm doing for myself right now isn't working for me so yeah 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 and um, for like layers for legs and stuff, like I know I read the stuff I was reading was saying, you know, like quite often people run cold legged a bit just because we, we have that tendency. Like if you're biking that, you know, I'm going to wear running pants that are windproof and stuff or fleece lined. But because your legs are cold, the blood doesn't circulate as fast. So it's important yeah. to, to kind of manage that right as well. Probably just as important as everything else. Yeah, um, I would say in general, I mean you always want to start out riding cold. And if you start out riding cold, whatever you're wearing at that point is probably pretty reasonable. Cause if you're comfortable when you start riding, you know, you're going to start overheating like right. halfway through the ride or, or 10, 15 minutes into it. So, I mean, that's the biggest thing I tend to, I mean, I guess bring the things that I might need, but if I'm just doing like a short ride, like not far away from home, I'll usually, I'll usually dress like, you know, pretty coolly and, and, and that does fine. So, like, underneath, a lot of the time, I won't even wear long johns. I'll just essentially wear a pair of, like, synthetic pants on the outside. And that's – my legs don't tend to get cold, though. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, a lot of times yeah. I go out and I just – I walk over to where the stairwell is in my underwear and I throw on my snow pants, the, my old snowboarding snow pants. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. good enough. Like, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe some long johns would be better go with it but like because sometimes yeah, you're right. like oh it's kind of cool <laughs> yeah. the only thing with that is like so you're wearing your snowboarding pants as soon as, soon as you start doing like technical trails right and you want to get back behind the bike or something oh like yeah that, you catch on it tra- well you got a dropper post on the shick shocks yeah. right so yeah. you're, you're a little bit spoiled so that definitely helps out but uh yeah if you don't have a dropper post you know you could run into some issues there yeah and there's um you know the 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 I'm not, I've never been a big dropper post person. It's just a relatively new technology. And when I yeah. just never, ever had one until now, but so I still don't use it right. Like going down hills and stuff. I don't even drop it. Like 
I try to, and then I drop it too much and I, I feel weird and uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it comes really handy when you go off the fat bike. So as soon as you go off, you can just kind of put your elbow on the seat, drop it, and then you yeah. can just kind of sit back on and raise it a bit and then start pedaling. And it's like, it's so easy to get on the bike, you know? Well, it's totally true because half of the time when you're jumping back onto your bike, you're doing it from like a snowbank too. Yeah. Where your feet have like sunk down in deeper exactly. than you're climbing up onto this bike. So totally. But I think, you know, um, I tried to install a dropper post on my Muckluck last year and it was a Fox transfer that I put on it and it just stopped working when it got below like minus 20. Uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to reattack this year with, yeah. uh, with a better post that's, uh, that's, uh, that's better in cold weather. Cause for the trails around where I ride, like some of them are pretty technical and yeah, dropper post is, uh, Oh yeah. I don't want to say, I mean, it's not a must, but it's uh it's a very, very nice to have for sure. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. It's uh, Gatineau park. The, the trails are, are fairly technical. Um, not, I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, compared to a rail trail, they're way technical compared to yeah. like La Rose forest. They're, they're technical. Well, La Rose is like very flowy. These okay. are like flowy, but with, downhill sections and rocks yeah. and like little berms and stuff. It's super fun. Well, someone, someone told me is like, if you're using your dropper post, right, you should be using it pretty much almost as much as you're shifting your gears. So, and I would oh, say, wow. like, with, okay. yeah. So with like, with the way I ride my mountain bike in the summer, I'm constantly using my dropper post. So uh, I think once you get used to it, Chris, like you're going to love it, man. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, like on my on my uh, titanium bike, I have uh, well, I have the redshift suspension seat post, but like, so I'm happy with that. But at the same time, like maybe if I threw a dropper on there just to try it out. Uh, yeah, right. But I'm slowly gonna convert that. I mean, I'm gonna put on some. Sus- sus- uh, I can't speak English. I'm gonna put some suspension on it for next year, like some one one twenties or one thirties. Yeah. Uh, make it more my trail bike, and and then use it for bike packing if I'm doing like a race that's got a lot of gnarly riding you know yeah 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 and sorry which bike is that when that's you say my my chiru divider oh uh, okay okay yeah, nice. so that's just for the uh but then we'll see i don't know it's all that's that's like months away i don't know yeah right <laughs> yeah but i feel it's funny because i've been listening to you like the last couple weeks have you been as you've been slowly getting into the fat biking and it's cool i feel like i mean trail conditions are so variable like yeah. based on where you are and how well they're groomed. And I'm like, I feel like Chris hasn't had that awesome fat bike experience yet. Just yet. because of like, yeah, but I'm like, it's going to happen. It's going to happen, man. And when yeah. it does, I think well, it's been, be like, it's been, I don't know how it's been over there for you guys, but with these last couple storms that came through and then we had a bunch of rain that made it into a big crusty shelf of snow that okay. you had to break through. So I went snowshoeing even in my backyard to pack down the dog's place. And I was like, crunch, crunch, like breaking through, like, an inch of like icy snow at the top, you know, Yeah, so much work, but, um, it is, but once that gets packed down on like the fat bike trails and you get enough people to go through there, it's funny. Like, especially when you get like the freeze thaw cycles and you start to ride early morning, Mm -hmm. like at least up here in towards like the end of March and early April, like our trails turn into bobsled tracks and they're so much fun to ride. Oh yeah. You can, ruse on them yeah oh, okay they're an absolute blast how um i want to ask about the route blanche how late in the season is it open till like depend i mean obviously um, so it depends I, but yeah so i mean it starts so it officially opened i think last year um somewhere towards mid-february early to mid-february 
I think the locals are probably riding it well before that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Before the government is ever is ever labeling it officially open. Um, and then how long it stays open. I mean, I think like these days, who knows, Chris, like it varies so much yeah. year to year with, yeah. with, um, with the climate. Cause I was thinking I, really... I could never do it, but then I thought, well, wait a second, like March break is usually right around mid March. Potentially yeah. it could still be cruising. Cause once it's you packed could. and once it's good, it's not going to melt super fast. Like even if, you know, it's not going to have the same melt off as like trails, like the side, the fields, the, the rivers. Nearby, right. Right. And so I wrote it like March, I started on March 8th um, and it was good. It was, it was not bad. It was getting, we had a couple warm days and as soon as you get the sun on it, even if it's a little bit below zero, but you get like the direct mm-hmm. sun on it, it'll start to soften up a little bit for sure. So if I could do it again, and I think I will do it again at some point, it would be, I think like mid to late February would be like the time to do okay. it. I mean, you're going to deal with, it's going to be cold. It's going to be really cold. Um, but but it'll be quicker qual- too. Exactly. Yeah. It's going to be quicker and the quality of the trail is going to be incredible. Mm. And that's where I like, I, I, it was, it was so funny, like towards the end of the trip, um, I had like a couple really good riding days in a row where the temperatures were cold and my bike was lighter because I'd eaten all my food and burned all the gas and like, I felt like it was incredible. I was like riding through this amazing landscape, finally putting in some good miles. And it's amazing. It's like to think that only like, you know, Samuel and Felix Antoine and then myself had ever ridden this thing on a fat bike. That's, is that's totally pretty amazing. Cool. Well, and that's where I wanted to, when I heard your podcast with Samuel, I'm like, man, what I want people to get out of this, what I want listeners to get out of it is like, if you're into bat bike packing and if you're into fat biking, uh, like this long distance stuff, like La Route Blanche is incredible for that. If you yeah. get it at the right time, you're going to have an amazing experience. Um, and I think it can probably seem daunting to some people, but it's relatively low risk when you think about if shit goes completely sideways and I need to walk my bike because I have a mechanical or something like that, like worst case, I'm probably like, you know, three to four hours walk away from one of those little refuges. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Where you can hunker down if you need to. Um, And I know the locals don't seem to mind too much. Like if you pop in there and light the stove or something like that. So um, Are they meant to be day use only? You know, I think that the official rules are you're not supposed to use them at all. They're there only in case of emergencies. Oh, okay. The people that I the people that I talk to, you can see when you go into them. I went into one on the first day just because I wanted to see what they would yeah. be like if I ever needed to use one. And, and I popped in and it's like, they're obviously being used and they're obviously being used relatively regularly. Right. Um, but it's so the, the key think, is that they're used respectfully. Right. So like, well, that's just it. Right. And I think, um, as long as you use them respectfully, as long as you clean them up after the fact, um, I don't think, and again, you know, maybe if it becomes a big tourist destination, you have people going in there regularly. But, Chris, there's not a lot of yeah, people yeah, up yeah. there, man. Like, yeah, there's some people cruising around on, on snowmobiles for sure. But in terms of, like, bikers, skiers, stuff, like, who are going to stay in these places, mm-hmm. like, 
There's none of them, man. Yeah. yeah. Well, even here in the Gatineau Park, like we have little cabins everywhere. You know, there's, okay. I think there's, I'm going to say nine, but it could be like 13 of them or more. I don't yeah. even know. Uh, they have wood inside of them. They have fireplaces. They have tables to chill at. Um, they've got, you know, even along the trails now in the winter at the junction to go up to Champlain Lookout at the junction, they have a, they built a, a, a shelter now to put all the wood under so that stays dry and they have a yeah. fireplace and they put benches out so you can just like chill by a fire for a bit, you know, that it's such incredible. an amazing thing. And, but at the same time, the trails aren't, it's the whole park is designed around cross country skiers. So it's yeah, not okay. yet to the point where it's. You know, there are 50, 60 kilometers of fat bike trails, which is sweet. Yeah. But they're not all joined very well together. So it's like there's still some work to be done there to to make it, you know, cohesive. And and I think they should also, some of the trails they should make fat bike, you know, multi-use so that you can get up to Champlain Lookout taking a trail while the skiers are yeah. on the road, you know, things like that. Yeah. But it's getting there. Um and then maybe the next step after that is to have the cabins be allowed to be used at nighttime because you're not yeah. technically allowed to stay in them overnight, you know? Well, and that's what I was thinking about the La Rue Blanche is, like, if you really wanted to do it as, like, you know, a bike touring type thing, it's, like, that would be the way to do it is to stop in one of those refuges every night, you know, light a fire, take a couple beers with you, and, like, you know, you could turn it to, like, an awesome week-long holiday yeah. type thing. You know, for that matter, go into some of these amazing towns that are there along the route because um, they have like some of these places have um, like hostels and Airbnbs to yeah. stay at. Oh, okay. some of the yeah, because the so, snowmobilers come through. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the biggest that's the thing in the winter is like snowmobile tourism among the communities. Right. So so you could definitely do this in a far more um, civilized and pleasurable way than 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 I went through it. Yeah. yeah. When I look at it, I'm like, okay, it would take me two two days to drive there. And yeah. then I need like, let's say five, six days to ride and then fly back and then drive home. So I'm like, I just don't quite have enough time on a one week school holiday. So I'd have to take a couple of days yeah. unpaid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. In my mind, it'd be worth it just for, yeah, uh, yeah. you definitely feel like you're out there, man. You definitely feel like you're a little bit out there in the middle of nowhere, especially when you elect not to stop in some of the towns. But, uh, but, but it's pretty incredible. Like, there aren't too many places like that. Like I said, if we were to open up Quebec to, you know, all the snowmobile trails, et cetera, you know, you'd have so much more to work with. But we really just don't, unfortunately. Yeah, I think this is on um, the bicycling communities in, like, Montreal and Quebec City and stuff to work on with the government because they're huge communities yeah. there. Like, it's um, – yeah, like, their voice could go a long ways in making some of these changes where it, – It's true. I, I really just don't I, – I feel like most of the fat bikers you have now because – or just focused on, like, the small little trail centers and going out for an hour or two. Because as soon as you throw long distance and, like, winter camping in there, you get rid of a whole cross-section of people that aren't willing to go through that, yeah, you know, yeah. that pain in the ass to do that and have those kind of experiences. Um, it's really – like I said, it's really – you got to be into fat biking – and you got to be into bike packing at the same time and really want to do one of these long distance things to make. But if, if you're into those things like La Rue Blanche is, is, is probably pretty, I would say it's almost one of a kind in, mm. in Quebec in terms of what we've got available awesome. to us. Yeah. And want to ask you as well, real quick. Um, what's your water setup? Like, do you, 
use bottles on your do you have like cases for your bottles or do you use like a no, a, a camelback under your, under your jacket camelback so i have like a three liter camelback which goes underneath your jacket otherwise your water freezes yeah. right insulated drinking tube uh and then if you're sleeping with your water that goes into the sleeping bag with you at night otherwise it freezes sure. and then a little route blanche because i wasn't i didn't stop anywhere for water it was just you know, I had enough gas with me and a whisper light stove in order to just melt snow uh, and make more water that way. But yeah, I mean, and that's key. And when it gets really cold. Um, and when you melt yeah, snow, I guess like as soon as it starts melting, it's not hot because it's just to the melt point and then you dump it in your bag. So it's like you're not putting boiling water in there. It's just water that's Water. No, no, it's not too bad. Like I didn't care about boiling. A lot of people are like, hey, man, you got to boil the snow. I'm like. Man, it just snowed like two days ago. This is very fresh snow. Take the white, not... take the white stuff. You'll be okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. So I wasn't concerned about that at all. So yeah, you're right. It's not boiling. It's just getting to the point where it's melting the snow, mm-hmm. and then like that, like I was just pouring that essentially right into my camel back. Um, and then the key, the key thing. It's funny, man. It's one of those. It's one of those gotchas. It's like you drink through the straw on the camel back, but if you're not careful, like the water that's in the hose, even though it's insulated, it's really easy to freeze that. Mm. So after you finish drinking, you got to like blow the water back through into the oh, Camelback okay. Reservoir. That's a, that's a pretty good trick that I learned the hard way a couple of times going out for like a long distance ride. I'm like, shoot, all the water in my hose froze. And right. Just because you have an insulated hose doesn't mean that it's actually going to keep the water. Um, yeah. Warm mm-hmm. at all. Yeah, yeah, so like, because a lot of times, even if it's in your jacket, it's still gets, I guess, like the hose is typically coming out of your jacket, right? So yeah, but it's like even even that hose is just, uh, yeah, it can get it can get pretty chilly, man. Or you forget to tuck the hose away or right. something like that, and the mouthpiece gets frozen. It's like, yeah, yeah, and especially, I mean. Yeah, I mean, these long-distance races where you're, you're racing at night, you're sleep-deprived, de- it's like you start making poor decisions relatively mm-hmm. quickly, so it's uh, yeah. kind of got to fall back on... on and what about, um, what about helmet? Like, are you do you use, um, like, a normal bike helmet, or do you have, like, a specific, you know, one of those closed-shell helmets that just keeps wind from blowing when in? Just, when I'm riding on any technical trails, I just use my, my regular um, trail, trail riding helmet. Okay. But for La Route Blanche, any of the long distance stuff, like the tri- the helmet is totally optional, and I do not take the helmet just because it's it's extra weight. And like for the most part, if you're falling off, you're falling into a pile of snow, and right. you're good to go, right? Yeah. And uh, just ski goggles then. Um, most of the time, I'm wearing um, just regular like summer riding glasses. Yeah. But if it ever starts snowing, the wind picks up or anything like that, then yeah, I have ski goggles with me and I use them definitely a couple times. Mm-hmm. So then, yeah, I just throw those things on. And what about um, like face protection? So I've I've used well recently. So I got the I got the I, I bought the Blivet helmet um, yeah. recently, and. If I have anything pulled up over my nose, of course, it's going to fog up, right? So yeah. I haven't figured out whether I like or hate that yet because I kind of like to keep my nose a little bit more covered. I'm considering yeah. trying to get a military balaclava again so that way okay. just the eyes and the mouth are open yeah, and yeah, the nose yeah. is covered. And yeah, um, So that's where I'm kind of leaning towards. So what I – I mean a lot of the time if it's not too cold, I'll just use like a really lightweight buff. And kind of pull that up, and I find that kind of gets rid. If it's really lightweight, it gets rid of enough moisture. 
that it doesn't bother me. But if it's really cold and I'm wearing goggles, I'll wear the same balaclava that I use essentially for um, for skiing and snowboarding. And it's got it's got it's not like a full up cut mouthpiece mm-hmm. um, around your mouth. It's just kind of like a mesh in there. So that allows pretty much all of the moisture to okay. escape, and, and it's a pretty good setup. What kind? What brand is that? Do you know? You know what? Good question. Just message me later. Yeah, you bet. But I find that works out pretty well, and it's one of those ones like the three in one. You can wear it as a balaclava. Mm-hmm. You can pull it back down, and then you can just wear it as a neck warmer as well. Okay. So it kind of covers you in a whole yeah, bunch yeah. of different situations. Yeah. yeah, I'd be interested to see what that is or to look at. Yeah, it. yeah, it's a good one for sure. Awesome. Yeah. So if people are considering a, a pretty good bike touring adventure, winter, winter style, uh, Rue Blanche definitely seems to be uh, something they might be able to plan around. I know yeah. we were talking about it earlier. I had the weleaf.nl um, on the podcast a long time ago, a year ago, maybe more. Um, and they cross country skied, I think part, I think, I think they cross country skied it where um, you mentioned that. Yeah. I think you're right. And I think if people are considering doing it, like don't hesitate to, you know, to ask me any questions about it. I would say the Wee Leaf, like they have a really nice video as well with drone footage. So you get to see what it actually looks That's like. Cool. And you get to see a lot of the scenery. And like you said, for you to get up there, it's a significant logistical effort. Mm-hmm. So people are want to put in the time and energy to do it. They kind of want to, have a pretty good idea of what they're getting into yeah. in terms of like, Hey, what the seat, what's the scenery actually going to be like? So I would say that that video is a, is a really good one to watch. Yeah. Cool. Um, sure. anything else that we might've missed that we should talk about regarding fat biking or winter riding? No, not in terms of the fat biking, uh, per se, but like, um, the only thing that I never mentioned and that like, it was, it was, it was cool doing, uh, doing the route blanche and, and, you know, uh, doing it solo and but uh, one of the neat things that we did and it was it was very much my wife's initiative was to was to do it for charity oh yeah sorry and yeah so, we meant to get back to that and we forgot yeah yeah so so we did it as a fundraiser which was which was incredible um, and I'm not a great social media person Chris I'm really not good at that but my wife did an incredible job of um, like we started up a GoFundMe and um and all the money that we raised went to uh, uh went to a charity called wheels for life mm. i'm not sure if you ever heard of it but do you know who hans ray is no it's okay so if you ever read like mountain bike action in like the 90s and the 2000s he's like uh uh he's like a, an old like trials rider and he still goes on these amazing expeditions but he and his wife set up this charity uh called wheels for life that essentially puts um uh, buys bikes for people in third world countries that can, that can use them as a, as a, as a means of transportation. So like we raised a decent amount of money and, and on all that money that we raised went to, went to wheels for life. And, and mm-hmm. honestly, my wife had like, in terms of like keeping the Facebook posts going and, 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 uh, and people, people appraised of where I was on spot. Like she did such an incredible job, Chris. That's awesome. And so, yeah, that was the only thing is like, just make people uh, aware of that fact that, you know, a lot of it was done for charity. Um, and then, uh, and, you know, to thank my wife for like, for doing such wow. an incredible job with that. That's good. The, uh, the, our wives, man, they usually have our backs and they, they do so much that, uh, <laughs> like my do wife, I, I'm, I'm getting ready to host uh, this bike packing summit. I'm sure you heard about. And 
my yes. wife's like, oh, if, if you make any money, what are you going to buy me? <laughs> like, if anything comes in at the end, what do you buy me? I said, I don't know. We'll figure it out. <laughs> there you go. She's right? like, like, I have to put know, up with your shit for spe- the last three years. <laughs> you know, it's a, like when you have young kids, right? You know, it's a, a pretty special woman when mm-hmm. they're willing to let you go out for five, six hours at a time. Or, or oh, she lets me go for week. days. Like, there I mean, you go, there's man. usually a little bit of negotiation to it, but like. And now her mom, her mom's here now, so she's with us for the next seven months. So okay. it definitely opens up that that door that if I want to get out, even for a winter overnighter, I could probably do it. So, yes, or yeah. like the Wendigo, um, that kind of thing. Yeah, she's, she's totally yeah. Cool. Are you? Uh, what are your chances? What are the chances of you doing the Wendigo? <clears throat> oh, hundred percent. I just don't know what okay, distance yet. Cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so long as I'm not, I don't injure myself or something in the in the two months <laughs> leading up to that. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's the winter. You should be pretty good to go. Yeah, right? exactly. And yeah. um yeah, just planning to do lots of cross country skiing and stuff in the meantime. Okay. Fat okay. biking. Nice. And, uh, nice, man. Yeah. So like what are the trails around you in Ottawa to ride on a fat bike? What are oh, the best trails? There's a lot, man. Like so in the Gano Park there's probably like fifty or so or sixty. Um, then there's like Love Rose Forest, which I mentioned earlier. It's about 30, 40 minutes from here, but it's, um, okay. they have like, maybe at the moment it's not all open yet. So like it's slowly okay. opening up cause some of them aren't yeah. groomed. They're only snowshoe driven. So once enough snowshoers get out there, it opens them up, but they probably have like 20, 30 kilometers. Then there's okay. another place called South Marsh Highlands. They have 37 kilometers. Then there's, there's a lot, there's a lot, a lot. And then there's even the rail trail from Chelsea to Wakefield, which is, about 20 kilometers of rail trail, which is multi-use. So fat bikes, cross-country skiing, skate skiers. I took our, we went cross-country skiing today and we had the dog with us. And then some people came by with like full on uh, cross-country skis with the joring set up. And they just flew by us with their, with their Australian shepherds. And it was awesome. And we're like, oh, no so way. Jealous. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. We're getting spoiled, right? It's pretty incredible what, uh, what some of these places are turning into. So yeah. we're lucky. Hey, yeah. If you're going to come down for Wendigo, you should, uh, stay a couple days and get some riding in. Cause well, be, I, yeah, right. I mean, that's kind of like my selfish reason for, for, for asking you about the trails down there. I definitely want to get there, you know, uh, yeah. a little bit beforehand, get some riding in and, uh, and maybe a little bit afterwards too. Yeah, so yeah, definitely. that's cool. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to say goodbye, but you don't have to hang up. I will just end the recording. So, uh, cool. Rich, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for sharing your tips and uh, stories and all about the route blanche. Yeah, nice. Thanks a lot for having me, Chris. All right. Talk soon. I just want to quickly thank Richard for taking the time to be on the podcast, sharing his knowledge, tips, experiences, um, and for you know, sharing even his realization and experience that he understands how, how amazing the route Blanche is and what a perfect, uh, fat biking destination it could grow into. And, and by growing as a fat bike destination, it would also bring money into the communities because fat bikers are definitely way slower than snowmobiles. And so they would be more likely to stop and, uh, you know, stay in hotels, guest houses, eat at restaurants, things like that. So that's pretty cool. In my own experience, in my own uh, research as well, since I started thinking about maybe writing this in March, is that you can fly into Natashquan for about the same price as you could drive from Montreal to Natashquan when it comes to fuel. So save yourself like two days, fly in there, and then you can fly right back to Montreal from Blanc-Sablon at the other end of the route. And the prices were actually pretty good. So yeah, 
check it out. Once again, thank you, Richard, for everything. And uh, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year's, everyone. Bye-bye. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated, and keep on pedaling.